vows you are about to take are to be taken with careful thought and prayer, for in them you are committing yourselves exclusively one to the other. Wow, you look great in blue, but then again you look great in any color. Really? You're so sweet. Why are all the good ones married? Don't worry. You'll find someone to love and to cherish till death do us part. Now repeat after me. Hello. Hey, Mike. No, no, he's still at work. Yeah, I know it's late. He has to entertain the clients. Yeah. It gets lonely sometimes. Thanks. Well, I'll call you if I need anything, okay? I promise. I promise to love and to cherish you till death do us part. What tokens do you have symbolizing these vows? May this ring be a symbol of your pure and unending love for one another. Hey, some of us are going to dinner. You want to come? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, let's go. As a symbol of my love, and with it pledge my loyalty and devotion. symbol of my love, and with it, pledge my loyalty and devotion as long as we both shall live. The outside candles represent your lives up to this moment. <laughs> we'll be letting the center candle represent the union of your lives into one flesh. By the power vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What God has brought together, let no man separate. You know, of course, this last week was the sixth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And I don't know if it was just me, but there was an eerie feeling this year and maybe it was because it was the first time that it's been on tuesday and the way i remember it happening the weather seemed to be the same i just had the same feel as i got up and it i watched of course like maybe some of you did some of the footage that uh, was captured from that day there was even one uh news channel that was replaying their coverage from 9 11 and watching that coverage again gave us a chance to relive some very awful moments But it also gave us an opportunity to remember that there were some heroes on 9-11, many heroes, who went in to rescue the people who were hurting those even who helped people after 9-11, and we honor those people and their their legend status for us. But as much as we honor the people who came in to help after the attacks, have you ever fantasized about what might have been 
if there had just been three people strategically placed on that morning, on September 11th? What if there was one person at Logan Airport? What if there was one at Dulles Airport? What if there was one uh, at, at Newark Airport just standing at the gate saying, those guys are terrorists? They've been to flight school learning to fly 757s, and they're terrorists, and their plan is to fly them into a building. Don't let them on the airplane. Just three people. What a difference that would have made. First off, there wouldn't have been the loss of nearly 3,000 lives in New York City. There wouldn't have been the massive loss of property. By extension, and I, I'm not smart enough to comment on this, and I'm not making any kind of social commentary, political commentary, but... We might not have lost any soldiers in Afghanistan. We might not be in Iraq today if just three people had been at an airport gate saying, those guys are terrorists, don't let them on the plane. The most stark moment in my life, as much as 9-11 affected me, there was no moment in American history that affected my life the way November 22nd, 1963 did. Most of you are too young to remember the Kennedy assassination, but I remember it vividly. I was seven years old in the second grade, 30 miles away in Fort Worth in in a classroom. We had celebrated the fact that President Kennedy was in our city, Fort Worth, the night before. We were all ginned up about him being in Dallas. And I remember sitting in the classroom listening to my principal's voice, Mr. Roten, break onto the intercom and telling us the words that even as a seven-year-old I couldn't even begin to process emotionally, and they still affect me to this day that President Kennedy had been blown away on an American street by a a maladjusted misfit with a $12 rifle and 50 cents worth of ammunition. The most powerful man in the world, and I'm not a political historian, but I would argue one of the three most eminently gifted presidents who served in the 20th century. And I think about what happened in the late 60s and all the turmoil and the unrest, and I I guess because of that, I've fantasized. In fact, I had, I've, I've had a recurring dream since my childhood that somehow I would be running out into the streets there before that black Lincoln limousine turned on to Elm, and I would stop the traffic and say to the driver, don't go any further, there's a sniper there, don't go into Dealey Plaza. I've dreamed that many times. There are certain things in life that have to be done in time. And if they're done in time... Wow, it's amazing what can be changed or what can be stopped from happening. But if they're not done in time, you you can never go back and relive the past, and there are just certain things in life that can't be fixed. I can't be at the airport. I can't be at Dulles. I can't be at Logan. I can't be at Newark. And as many times as I've dreamed about going out and stopping that procession in Dallas, I can't do that. But I feel intense pressure on me. I've never felt that I can recall as much pressure on me as I stand before you because today I feel like I'm that person standing before you. Because I want to talk to you about something out there that's scary, that's bad, that could damage your life. I want to talk to you about something that could have so many repercussions. I want to talk to you about something that could reverberate out into the future. And what I want to talk to you about is I want to plead with you not to get into an affair. If you're, if you're unmarried, I want to plead with you not to hook up with people sexually before you get married. And if you are married, I want to plead with you. Be true, be honorable to your marriage vows. And that's why today's message is called Before the Vow Breaks. 
You and I live in a sex-saturated culture. We, we have, as a culture, bought into the Freudian philosophy that sex basically is the answer for everything, or at least it's the explanation for everything. And we live in a world in which the images of sexuality are before us all the time. We struggle with the issue of pornography because it's so, it's so rampant, it's so available. When I was a child growing up, if a person was going to get into pornography, they took those sleazy magazines that were, you know, you had to, or you had to go to the, to the, the so-called bad part of downtown to, to find pornography. But today it's just a click away. You can even carry it with you. And it's tough because it seems like, doesn't it seem like everybody around us is doing it? We even have a word for it that's presented to us in television shows and movies. It's called an affair. Doesn't that have a lilting, delicate, whimsical sound? So-and-so is in an affair. Man, that's a real euphemistic term. That's a real positive-sounding term. An affair sounds like something that you would eat sherbet at. You would decorate with flowers for. You know, it sounds like a place where it's something you would serve potato salad at. An affair. And that's the way it's presented to us. But what I want you to know is that an affair is not a whimsical situation. It's a terrorist attack. If you talk to anybody who's made the round trip already, and I don't mean somebody who's on the first leg of the trip, but I mean if you talk to somebody who's made a round trip, and maybe some of you have here today, and you'd be the first one to say, go, Mark. Tell them it's true. If you talk to somebody who's made the round trip, they'll tell you there are terrorists at the gate. There's snipers in the building because it's not what it looks like. And so if I, if I, feel, <laughs> if I feel undue pressure maybe or maybe stronger pressure than I normally feel, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you today at the gate, don't let it happen. I know the moment I say that, I'm talking to a lot of you that are in this range some of you are like in the front part of the range, and you're saying, Mark, I never see it happening. I love my wife. I love my husband. My marriage is good. Everything is great. I, I don't flirt. I don't, I don't put myself in bad situations. Could I just tell you, great, but at the same time, would you still listen to the sermon? I may be talking to somebody here today, and you say, Mark, I, I know where the lines are drawn. I, I sort of like walk right up to the line and I do some flirting, and, you know, I'm just kind of the office cut up and everything. And, yeah, it's true, there are some things in my marriage that are not real strong right now, but I, that would never happen to me. I know where to draw the line. Man, if there is any energy in my body today, I plead with you desperately to listen to what I have to say before the vow breaks. I could be talking to somebody, and, I mean, you have basically got the motel room and you've got reasons for it and you know why it's going to work and your situation is different from anybody else's and it's really love and after all the flame is burned out in your marriage and it can never be heated back up again and you just don't understand mark my situation is different i know there's some cheesy ugly sleazy stuff where people are sleeping around but that's it's just we pray together i want to talk to you today Interestingly enough, though, I, I want to talk to you from a, a story in the Bible that has nothing to do with sex, at least right up front. But it's a story about a great guy in the Bible who, 
who did something, and, and it, it's what he did internally that I've covenanted with myself. I want the same thing in my life. And I, I pray that you'll just give this message a listen today. I, I don't know where I find you. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you think. You may be a Christ follower. You might not be religious at all. But d- just wherever circumstance you come from today, would you just please listen to what I want to share with you today? Because I really believe I could be that person at your gate. I could be that person in your procession to say, please don't go any further. There are terrorists at the gate. There are snipers in the building. His name was Daniel. Daniel's circumstance and situation is something that none of us would like to find ourselves in. Daniel was a Jewish boy. His country was Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. God had said, you are my chosen nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will hurt those who hurt you. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Daniel grew up a chosen guy in a chosen country. But he grew up in a chosen chosen guy in a chosen country at a very, very bad time. It was a bad time to be born when Daniel was born. Because Israel was running the table of a really bad situation. God had pleaded with him from the very beginning, don't worship idols. I will do all kinds of good things for you, but don't worship idols. Now, in our culture today, the moment I mention the word idol, we freak a little bit because we think, what is worshiping idols? You know, you read the Bible and God's got all this stuff about worshiping idols. It's like all through the Old Testament and even through the New Testament, God is saying, don't worship idols. And we're saying, man, that, we don't do that. We don't worship idols. But before you say that, let me just give you a little bit of definition of what idols are all about. Yes, indeed. People in the Old Testament bowed down before wood carvings. And they bowed down before, you know, crafted gold or silver items. But really, the whole deal was this. An idol is anything that takes the God-shaped hole in your heart and fills it up. God has put within every one of us a desire to know God. The most rock-ribbed, fire-spewing atheist I will talk to, and I'll look him in the eye, and I'll say, one thing I know about you, there's a spot in your heart that's just made to worship God. Bob Dylan, in the great song that Lance did not too long ago that I love so much, got to serve somebody. He said, no matter who you are, you got to serve somebody. And the reason Dylan wrote that lyric is because you got something inside of your heart, an empty spot that just cries out for God. But Satan has done his very best since the very beginning of time to corrupt that and to try to talk man into filling his heart with something else. And that's what idols were all about. There, there was that temptation for Israel to take that God-shaped vacuum and fill it up with something other than God. Today, well, we're pretty sophisticated, and we, don't, we use things like sports and celebrity and technology. God had warned Israel time and time again, don't worship idols. I mean, he would send the prophets. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, sometimes there's a huge section of the Old Testament, you know, and it's prophets. And you read the message, and it's like they all say the same thing. It's like this huge section of the Bible where God's prophets just came and said, please stop worshiping idols. If you don't, you're going to get into trouble. And here's what God said. This is what's so powerful. God said, I'm actually going to go to work for your enemies. I'm going to use your enemies to punish you. You know, sometimes we get the idea that God is this sort of saccharine, sweet, loving God who would never do anything that slapped our hands because God is a God of love. Man, this is God's people, and God was saying to them, if you don't stop worshiping idols, I'm going to go to bat for the Babylonians. I'm going to go to bat for the Assyrians. I'm going to go to bat for the Chaldeans. 
and I'm going to let them tear you up until you figure it out, and then I'm going to be good to you again. And unfortunately, Daniel grew up in that. I mean, he wasn't an idolater, but everybody around him was. And finally, God said, that's it. I've had enough. And there was this guy named Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon, who was the first head of the great world power. And God whispered in Nebuchadnezzar's ear, it's time, man. Go paddle my people. And he did, and it was ugly. It was brutal. Nebuchadnezzar, and I won't try to make a long story even longer, but Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem where the people didn't have food to eat. It was ugly. It was inhuman what was going on. And then he, he carried away people captive, killed many of the people, killed pregnant women, killed children. And he carried away some people captive to Babylon. And Daniel was part of that group. He was a young guy. He was a kid. He was smart. He was the head of his class. And it's at this point that we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 1. And, and I want to show you something here that's really interesting. In Daniel 1, uh, we're going we're gonna to see four guys mentioned here in verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. Just let me back up for one moment here. What I should have told you was this. Nebuchadnezzar had this idea that he thought was humane. What, what he wanted to do was to take the best and brightest kids from captured lands, and he wanted to indoctrinate them with the lifestyle and the education and the language and the customs of the Babylonians. And basically what he wanted to do was to make Babylonians out of captured people, send these smart young people back into the culture to basically become missionaries for the Babylonian culture. And there were four kids that he selected from the Jewish people. And some of you know three of them. We call them the three Hebrew children. I never know why we do that, but we do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which weren't their real given names, as you just saw. And the fourth guy was Daniel. And here they are. They find themselves in a Babylonian culture. They didn't choose to be there. They were carried away captive. But one thing is pretty apparent. They have the favor of God on them because all the bad things that have happened to their people, these guys have found themselves living in the palace, going to the best universities, eating the best food, being, being cared for and treated like Babylonian aristocracy. So in that vein, I guess you could say that Daniel was in a pretty good situation. But the problem is, you, you remember the problem that his own people had? Idolatry? Man. He's jumped out of the frying pan into the fire because the Babylonians are totally idolatrous. And we see that right up front because the Bible says that when they first brought these guys into the palace, the first thing they did was they changed their names. In fact, the Hebrew word is what we would say it was bolted on. They, they bolted the names on as if to say, you're never going to be what you used to be. You used to be called Daniel, but we're bolting a new name on you. Your name now is going to be Belteshazzar. Michelle, you're going to get a new name. You're going to be bolted on. It's going to be Meshach. And all four of these names, listen, all four of these names were derivatives of the names of foreign deities. That means that from now on, they're going to, get, they're going to have the name of a foreign god bolted to them. Could I tell you that just like Daniel... You're going to have a lot of things happen in your life that you can't do a thing about. 
Daniel could do absolutely nothing about the misbehavior of his forebears. He could do absolutely nothing about the Babylonian invasion. He couldn't do anything about the fact he'd been ripped away from his family. He couldn't do anything about the fact that he'd been chosen to learn the ways of the Babylonians. I mean, he was a captive. He had to do what they told him to do. And he could not do anything about what they called him. But look at the first word of the next verse. But Daniel was determined. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I slept through too many language classes when I was in school. But that word determined is the same word that means bolted down. Daniel said, you have bolted some things down. You have bolted me in a culture that I can't do anything about. You have even bolted me down with a new name. But now I'm going to bolt some things down. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Now, that's a strange thing. I mean, here you are, Daniel, in a pagan culture, and all of a sudden, you know, they're bringing out steak and lobster and chocolate cake and vintage wines. They're bringing out the best of food. And Daniel said, listen, I'm bolted down. I'm not going to eat that stuff. Now, it's the why that draws exactly on what I want to talk about today. Because, see, that food had been dedicated to idols. The Babylonians looked at it this way. The way they saw it is this food comes to us from the bounty of our pagan gods. And when we put that food into our mouths, it is an act of worship. And we are saying that our life came from these pagan gods and the life that we're about to live is in honor of these pagan gods. And Daniel said, I'm bolted down. I'm not going to do that. Now, why? And this is where it gets right down to the key of the way, or the core of the way we look at sex in our lives. I think there are two reasons why Daniel said, I'm not going to do this. The first one was Daniel was saying to himself, I know where... I know where this leads, and I know what happens to people who get into idolatry. Man, my people have been spanked for this. My people have been decimated because of this, and, and I know where this leads. I mean, if you look at Jeremiah forty six thirty eight, listen to what God said. God said to Israel, I cannot let you go unpunished. I mean, think about that. God was saying to his people, I can't let you go unpunished. And when Daniel saw that food that had been dedicated to idols, and listen, he was putting his life in jeopardy. The rest of the chapter makes it very clear that he was. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar could have cut off his head, but Daniel was saying, I got somebody bigger than Nebuchadnezzar to worry about here. I have seen what God does to people who break covenants. And he was saying, I'm bolted down on this thing. If it costs me, costs me my life, I'm not, I'll starve to death. I'll go to the fiery furnace. I'll get my head cut off or whatever happens. I'm bolted down on this because I know what happens. God had said to my people, I can't let you go unpunished. And God was saying, I'm, I'm, Daniel was saying, I'm not going to worry about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to worry about God. You know what? Some of you are going to feel the pressure to fall into adultery. It's just going to happen. I, I, I know maybe it won't happen to everybody here. But my guess is for most of us, there's going to be a temptation at some moment of our lives to walk across that line and get in a relationship that we know is bad. And and I think, here's the deal, here's the thing that just eats me up, is I think Christ followers do it just like people in the outside world do it. 
And sometimes we just cover it up better. And a guy laid on line, man, you know, you may listen to me today and you say, man, Mark, you're just really preaching negative sermon today. <laughs> I just, listen, I'm at the gate. I'm telling you, there are terrorists at the gate. There's snipers in the building. But some people have the idea, some Christ followers have the idea, listen, God is a God of love, and this is the age of grace. And here's the one that I've heard many, many times that just freaks me out, makes me want to kick a hole in something solid. When people tell me this, people say, well, Mark, listen, God will forgive any sin, so I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to pray, and I know God is going to forgive me. This verse will not be on the screens this morning, I don't think, because I came across it in my, my, my personal reading today. I wasn't trying to find a verse on this topic. It's just this was my personal reading, and boom, there it was. So could I share it with you? It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. God's will is for you to be holy and to stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. L- listen to verse 6. Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife. Are you hearing this? For the Lord avenges all such sins. That's New Testament. That's age of grace. That's church age. That's where we're living. That's not Old Testament. We're not talking about the prophets here. We're not talking about Moses and the law. We're talking about New Testament. We're talking about Jesus Christ and all the love and liberty he brings. And here's what God is saying. Because see, forgive me for breaking the sentence here, but one of the things that I hear, and I have no idea where this insane concept comes from. Christians, sometimes some of the ones I talk to can be the stupidest people in the world. Uh, Sometimes here's what I hear. It goes something like this. All sin is equal. So adultery is the same as stealing a pencil. I do not know where that insanity comes from. It clearly does not come from the Bible. All sin is not equal. Maybe in the sense that all it takes to send a person to hell is one sin. I guess in that sense it is, but all sin is not equal. Adultery is a metastasis of sins. If you think about adultery, it breaks nearly every one of the Ten Commandments. It's not one sin, it's many sins. But the primary thing about adultery that makes it so different from so many other sins is it violates a covenant. Remember, I talked to you about that last week. And here's what God is saying. Every time adultery is involved, somebody is defrauded. Somebody is deceived. And God is saying, here's the deal. God's saying, I'm going to go to bat for the offended people. You say, Mark, I can't believe that God would judge me for committing adultery because God is a God of love and God loves me. Let me tell you, God loves all the people that you hurt. And I'm just pleading with you today. I'm not trying to be mean or negative. I'm just saying there are snipers in the building. There are terrorists at the gate. Please don't walk across that line. Could I ask you to be like Daniel and be bolted down and say, listen, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. Circumstances may be awkward. My marriage may not be strong, but I'm bolted down on this. There's a second reason why I think Daniel was bolted down. And I've already given it away. So if you'll allow me to tell you what you already obviously know from the story. It could be argued probably candidly that it wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world if Daniel had cut into a stake that was dedicated to an idol. Paul tells us in the New Testament that, listen, when you eat a piece of meat, don't worry about where it's been as long as it's, you know, sanitary and healthy and everything. I got to tell you, I, I don't think it would have been the worst sin in the world if Daniel had eaten some of that food that was dedicated to idols. But The reason why Daniel didn't, this is so big. Oh, I wish I... And I just pray God gives me the power to preach what I need to preach right now. What Daniel knew was that was the first step down the slippery slope. I mean, Daniel had watched his people go into full-blown idolatry. And Daniel just said, that's a slippery slope. And I'm not going to take one step that direction. 
Every single person in this room, I think, knows what it's like to be in just a little conversation with some member of the opposite sex and just feel a little flutter. It's a little attractiveness. It's a little look. Oh, man, nobody's going to get a hotel room. Nobody's going to go to bed with anybody. It's just a little playful fun. That's what Daniel said, I'm bolted down on. I'm not going to take a step that direction because once I do, it's a slippery slope. And he said, I'm bolted down. Could I ask you a question this morning? Let me ask you two. Are you bolted down in this big area? Am I bolted down? Man, I I tell you, I have to ask myself that all the time because I love my wife. I'm totally committed to her, but all of us know about high-profile spiritual religious leaders who have gotten themselves into an affair. And And at that point, it's game, set, match. Are you bolted down? Have you determined? See, here's the thing about being bolted down. Many of us, we look at life like this. We say, here are my values and here are my circumstances. And my values relate to my circumstances. So if my marriage is healthy and everything is going great, my sex life is good with my wife and my husband, and we're getting along and we love each other and we're having laughs with each other and uh, got time with each other, my values are right here. My values say, I don't mess around. I'm bolted down. But if you're not bolted down, here's what will happen. Your marriage is not always going to be great. How many, how many married people have discovered that already? Is, was that a surprise? I looked at you like, oh, wow, man, maybe this is a surprise. Marriage life is not always going to be great. So what happens if you're not bolted down? Your values might come over here. And you're still saying, well, I'm still equidistant. But your values have shifted. Daniel just said, I'm bolted down. Are you bolted down? And then if you say, yes, Mark, I am bolted down, could I ask you a question? What are your safeguards? What are the boundaries that you've put in place? Because if you are bolted down, that should lead to another comment. That should lead to another statement. If I say I'm bolted down, I should say I'm bolted down and here's my strategy. I've heard preachers preach, and I may have even said this comment myself, and if I have, I'm sorry I've said it, but I've actually heard ministers preach, and they've talked about this, and they say this. They say something like this when it comes to adultery. They say, you should never say that will never happen to me. But I want to tell you, isn't that what we say when we get married? Isn't that what you promise when you're standing before a preacher? Aren't you saying, that will never happen to me? I will be faithful to you. I will love you. Keep only to you as long as we both shall live. That's what we promise. So I'm going to tell you, yes, you should say, that will never happen to me. But here's my strategy for the way I'm bolted down. Let me give you three things today that are part of my strategy. And there may be more things here. These are just the ones that are in my life. And we're going to talk pretty openly and honestly today. You know, that's one reason we're so glad to have Kids World and stuff, because I need to really, this is a PG sermon. I just need to shoot real, real straight with you. Could I, could I start by saying, I, I, after pastoring 30 years and, and counseling a whole lot, I don't think most adultery is about sex. Sex is only the currency. I mean, haven't you found, haven't you known somebody who like got into an affair with somebody else? And then when you find out, you know, because they're just like, oh man, my whole world's revolving around this new person in my life. And you're thinking to yourself, man, she must be a goddess. Man, he, he must be a rock star. And then you meet them and you think, what did he see in her? What did she see in him? You know, I mean... I, I don't want to be personal about this, but I always think about Prince Charles when I get like this. 
I know I've got to be missing something there. I should have had some visuals for that one, shouldn't I? You can tell that was an unplanned comment. Here's what I've discovered most affairs are about. When I talk to the person who's fallen, you know, who's like stepped across the line, oftentimes, if they're, if there's, if they're in a marriage, and I'm not, I'm not giving a person a pass for falling into adultery. I want you to understand this because God has promised. He said he'll be the avenger. But what I discover is oftentimes this person felt like there were needs that were not being met in the relationship. And this other person at least pretended to meet their needs. There's a woman who says, my husband doesn't understand me. And the guy at the office, he understands me. Well, he probably doesn't understand his wife. But he understands me. She understands me. Now, that's not true. But you can see there's the vulnerability of unmet needs. Now, these are not my, this is not my list. Dr. Dr. Willard Harvey wrote a book called His Needs, Her Needs. He ranked the top five needs of a woman, top five needs of a man. And I'm going to give them to you as he listed them. If you want to copy these down, you may. I I think you're probably going to disagree with some of these because all of us are different. There's no woman who's like every woman. There's no man who's like every man. I know that. I don't even agree with his order here. So I'm not saying that these are like cast in stone. These are not Bible. This is just Dr. Harvey's. But I would say this, after looking at the list and after talking to hundreds of couples over the years, I would say, ignore this list at your own peril. A woman's number one need, according to him, is affection. If that could be put into a statement on a man's part, it would be, I really care about you. Not just verbalized, but shown, I really care about you. Affection. God has put within the heart of every woman a need for security. And I just think, you know, it's very hard to feel secure around someone who doesn't love you. I mean, if you know you're married to somebody who's totally absorbed with his own self, his own career, his own life, his friends, his hobbies, and you know that you don't rank high on his list, I don't care how many times he says he loves your sentient cards, it's just, wow, there's an unmet need. And Dr. Harvey put that number one on his list. Number two is conversation. How many of us remember the show from the 90s, Home Improvement with Tim Allen? Remember the grunts? (laughs) Some guys do that. And, you know, there's this... Since, well, my wife knows what I'm thinking or my wife knows that I love her, there's a need for conversation. Two-way, two-way, men, both speaking so that your wife will know what your real feelings are. And I'm not talking about, you know, talking to her about the weather or talking to her about the chiefs or talking to her about what, who said what at the office today. I'm, talking, I'm saying giving some of your real self, telling her what your emotions are, tell her what you're feeling. Articulate that, verbalize it. And then Listening. Boy, this is where I have a problem. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, and we've all been told that by our grandmothers. But what that means is, listen, if you're married, listen. Don't pass judgment, just listen. Let me tell you one of the biggest mistakes I made in my marriage. I am by nature a fixer. I'm accustomed to people coming to me and telling me their problems, and that's what I do. And I say, well, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's what the Bible says. A, B, C, do this. Your life will be better. That's a lot of what I do on stage, isn't it? I mean, I talk to you about fixing what can be broken in your life. And so that's what I do. And in the early days of, of my marriage, Mary Alice would come home from work, and she would start telling me about all these problems that she was dealing with. And I, I don't know. There's probably no, no other guy like me, but I'm type A personality. There are no pastels in my personality. Everything's bright colors. And, and so she would tell me her problems, and I'd say, well, that's, not, that's nothing. 
All you need to do is A, B, C. This is all you need to do. That's, I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're stressing over this. this isn't any problem. I could fix that in a heartbeat. This is all you need to do. And one day, Mary Alice stopped me mid-fixing, mid-explanation. And she said, Mark, I don't tell you these things because I want you to fix my problems. I just tell you these things because I want you to care. Conversation number two. Number three, honesty. Men, I don't... Not, I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush here, but there's, there's, a, chink, there's a problem in, in man's armor, man's spiritual armor, emotional armor. Sometimes we can be very, very selfish, and in order to cover up our selfishness, we have dishonesty because we really don't want to tell the whole story. We don't want to say, well, you know, I was out with my buddies, and, you know, we, we went out and we had a few beers after work today. So what we say is, well, I had to work late. I was at the office. Then your wife talks to somebody who's at the office and says, oh, hey, you know, he left about 3.30 today. And, and you know what? There may not have been anything catastrophic in that. But at the moment she loses trust, that innate need that she has for security is violated. That's why Dr. Harvey put this number three on the list. Number four is financial commitment. That means I'm going to care about you financially. Number five is family commitment. That means if you're married, you care about your wife. You're there. If affection says, I care about you. Family commitment says, I'm here. I'm here when I'm here. I'm not thinking about something else. I'm here when I'm here. I care about the kids. I care about you. I'm here. That's his list, number five. You may, not, you may have had others on the list. You might not have had them in that order, but that was Dr. Harvey's. For men, number one on his list was sexual fulfillment. He said, the average woman doesn't understand a man's need for sex just like a man doesn't understand a woman's need for affection. And this gives me an opportunity to say that all the things that men need, women need too. He's just prioritized them in this way. But I, I think he's, whether it's number one or not, I think he's right about the fact that it's hugely important. Sometimes we don't understand between genders the other person's needs because they may be different from, from our own. Number two is recreational companionship. I was sort of surprised this one was so high on his list, but he says after counseling hundreds, maybe thousands of couples and interviewing couples, this was big. Because he said men love recreation, and they really want to recreate with their wives. He said oftentimes what will happen in the early stage of a marriage, a wife will think that she's really being gracious to her husband, saying, you know what, I really don't like football. Why don't you go do that with your friends? That's going to be okay, and I'll go do something with my friends. And that can be like the first step down the road to saying, you know what, what you really care about is not really important to me. And I know in my own marriage, we've worked through this one a little bit. My wife will watch football with me. I am a football addict. I'm from Texas. All balls have corners. And, and I love football. And Mary Alice will sit down with me and she'll say, you know what? I think that guy was in motion before the snap. And I know that she doesn't care a thing about that. But that's her way of trying to get into my world. I actually go to antique shops with her. She knows that's not my thing. <laughs> but that's just being in each other's lives. Number three, attractiveness. And that doesn't mean that you need to be a fashion model. It just means that, you're, that you, you do your best for your husband and you present yourself in the best way. Men are very side-oriented. Number four, domestic support. That means simply that you care about, you care about him just like a man is to have a family commitment. And then number five, this is number five on Dr. Harvey's list. I would put this as number one on my list. But he said every man has a need for admiration. I believe that. You know, my wife is she's just such a wonderful lady, but i got to tell you, in 30 years of marriage, and I lead a public life, and I do a lot of things that are publicly, and I'm sure I fail at a lot of things. I don't think I've ever had Mary Alice tell me, Mark, I think you failed at that. I think I could fall flat on my face, and she would say, that was a great message. 
And I can't tell you what that does for me. Because she doesn't nitpick and fault find and say, I don't know why you're, you're never successful. It's like, man, whatever I do, I'm successful at everything. I know it's not true, but it's awesome to hear it from her. Now, I don't know what made your list, but I, I will just tell you this. If you want to bolt it down in your life and if you want to affair-proof your marriage, you've got to think about what are the needs. And first of all, you need to think about what your needs are, and then you need to think about the needs of your partner and meet those needs. I've got to hustle because I'm running out of time. I preached 15 minutes into overtime last night. I can't do that today because we have kids' world going on. Number two, prepare for lean times. Every marriage will go through lean times. Maybe you may, a guy, somebody may lose a job. A kid may get sick. Uh, just could be in that nasty adjustment stage in the first year of marriage. And you're going to go through a lean time. Your sex life will not be what you want it to be. Maybe you won't be getting along. Maybe you'll have a hard time understanding each other. And that's when we get so vulnerable because it'll look like somebody else was probably the right person. And how'd they marry the wrong guy? How'd I marry the wrong girl? Man, we just, you know, we're so right for each other. I want to tell you, if you're married, especially if you're young and you're married, prepare for times not being perfect. You're human. You're a sinner married to a sinner. There are going to be problems. And it's not sinner plus sinner. It's sinner squared when you get married. Prepare. Prepare for times. Bolt down. And you can say, you know what? My marriage is not what I wish it was right now. My sex life is not what I wish it was. My husband doesn't appreciate me like he should. But I'm bolted down. I've seen where this goes. I've talked to people who've made the whole round trip. I've... I don't, I'm not going to get on the slippery slope. I'm prepared for, for lean times. And number three, I never know how to preach this. I get a little awkward. I'm probably a little more Victorian than I wish I was sometimes. But I just need to lay it on the line today. If you're married, you need to have a great romance and a great sex life with your partner. That is one of the greatest safeguards you can possibly have. If you have what's right, you won't go looking for what's wrong. And I don't mean that there might not, I know the moment I say that there's an Achilles to that because somebody can say, well, Mark, I've tried to do that with my husband, but I married a guy who's just a serial adulterer. I know that happens sometimes. I'm just talking about in the generic sense. But I'm just saying the greatest thing that you can do with your wife is to have a romance with her. Continue to chase her, like I said last week. Keep pursuing her. You need to have a great romance life with your wife. You need to have a great romance life with your husband. And sometimes, can I get a witness on this? It's going to mean doing some things that maybe might not be your first inclination. But you're bolting down. And you're saying, I'm bolted down, and here's my safeguards. I got a gift from a friend from my birthday a couple of years ago, and I'm, I'm a lifelong Dallas Cowboy fan, and since I came from Texas, I hope you give me a pass on that. When I opened the gift, it was a Dallas Cowboy helmet, and I thought, wow, that's a great gift, and then I looked a little closer, and I saw that it had riding on it, and when I saw the name, I realized what a valuable gift my friend had given me. The name on that helmet was the, the only guy who ever played for the Cowboys that I would consider a legend. The name was of the quarterback who quarterbacked Dallas from 1969 to 1979, led them to four Super Bowls, won two of them, MVP of Super Bowl VI. We called him Captain Comeback because, as the defense said, we always thought if we could get the ball back to Roger, we could always win. He threw the Hail Mary in 1975. 
Hall of Fame legend, now CEO of a multi-billion dollar company in North Dallas. A success at everything he ever touched. But he was being interviewed, and they still call it the interview to this day. Phyllis George, who was the first female to be a strong football interviewer on NFL Today, 1971, right after Roger won the Super Bowl, with that squeaky clean image that he had, she was interviewing him in his living room as Roger held one of his babies. And she said, Roger, everybody thinks you're a square. That was the word we used for it back then. It was impossible not to juxtapose Roger against the quarterback who had quarterbacked his team to the Super Bowl in Super Bowl III in New York City, whose name was Joe Namath, who was the ultimate party animal, drinker, crowds, the girl chaser. And Roger said something that made us all a little uncomfortable in 1972 because we weren't used to hearing this on television, but he just blurted it out. And I think to this day, I'm so thankful that one guy had the guts to say this. When she asked him about not being sexually active like, like Namath, he said... I enjoy sex as much as Joe Namath, but just with one girl. I'm glad for that. That's the reason why I have his helmet in my living room. <laughs> and I'm glad for a lot of things he did, but I'm, I'm thankful that one guy had the courage to just say it right there on national television. And if you, I mean, it's, people still talk about that 35 years later. I mean, if you look up Phyllis George's page in Wikipedia, that interview with Roger Staubach is there. Because one guy said, hey, sex is a God-given thing, and I enjoy it, and I love it, but with my wife. I'm asking you this morning, are you bolted down, and what are your safeguards? Daniel said, I'm not going to take one step down the slippery slope. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray you would strengthen every one of us, starting with myself, to say in this matter that we're bolted down. We trust you and ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I know I'm in overtime this morning. You know, you have a worship folder. If during this service God has led you to make a decision in your life, just detach this part of the card. You can drop it in the boxes at the back. If you receive Jesus as your Savior today, if you asked him in your heart and life, we have a, a gift packet for you to help you get started in your Christian life. And all you need to do is bring that card right back to guest services, and they'll give you one today, and you can take it with you. I'm going to ask the ushers now to come forward for the weekend offering. And uh, if I do this so fast, I know I, I do this a lot of times. We just sell right through the offering. Um, if I do and you don't have time to get your check made out or your envelope or whatever, you can also drop them at the boxes at the back, back doors or at the bottom of the staircase, or you can give online at newspring.org. Thank you so much for being here today. May God bless you. Would you pray for me, please, as we get ready for the 11 o'clock service?